What's up, everybody? Okay, before we dive into today's podcast, I just want to let you know towards probably it's it's a longer podcast because at the end of this podcast, we dive into very deep underwriting, um, real estate, understanding cap rates. We, I mean, we really go into a lot of important information associated with investors putting their money with capital raisers and operators and how operators affect. It's one of the best discussions I've ever had on underwriting and projecting real estate. I can't wait for you guys to hear it. So enjoy the podcast. Welcome, everybody, to the AJ Osborne Show, where we focus on our core tenets, impact, freedom, and progress. Join me and others as we grow through education and discussion. Welcome, everybody, to the AJ Osborne Podcast. And today, I have a very special guest, well, at least to me, I think you're pretty special, man. Kyle, he's a wonderful, really good friend of mine. Um, and Kyle has such an interesting past. He's been doing underwriting on large uh, apartment developments or apartment acquisitions. And it, he actually likes the numbers, which we're going to have to talk about that for a minute. I, 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 you don't match the person that I would actually think would be the underwriter because Kyle was a professional hockey player. So how did you go from being a professional hockey player, then you went to liking Excel and underwriting, and then we'll talk about what you're doing now and why. That's not necessarily that I like Excel. I just like numbers better than people. Um, it's uh, it, it, I do have a bit of an interesting story, a background that uh, you're not going to see typically here. Um, I am a professional hockey player by trade, as you said. Um, and, uh, we kind of fell into the, uh, what most people call house hacking, uh, early in my career where I, uh, I bought a place where I was playing the one time, uh, had a couple extra, extra bedrooms and we rented them out to other players who, who stayed with us and, uh, that worked great, but we didn't really know what we we're doing. Um, you know, this is back, uh, you know, pre crash, like kind of right around there. Um, and actually it might've been right after the crash. And uh, it was just, you know, extra income. And um, then later in my career, I was kind of realizing that uh, I'm not going to play hockey forever. Uh, we need to figure something out for the rest of our lives. And I uh, started looking around where we're, what we're going to do with this money that we've made and what we're, you know, what our plans are going to be, because I could get injured at any time. And real estate just kept coming up. It's such a great uh, vehicle for even passively investing uh, before you even get to the active side with the, you know, it's indexed to inflation. And, you know, there's just so many benefits. Um, so we got kind of hooked on that. And um, my wife at the time, uh, Ashley, um, was uh, working as a director in a pharmaceutical company. And she was living with me and working remotely. And um, her father was a general contractor. She'd grown up uh, with him and working on his job sites and, and doing that stuff with him. And so they uh, they started flipping houses. And that was our, our how we got into it years, years and years ago. Um, and then it just kind of progressed from there. Once you, once you get in the business, you start realizing there's always something better and always something more you could do. And we you know, upgraded from little greenhouses to red hotels and we haven't looked back. You know, it, it's so funny because when 
when we first met and hanging out in Hawaii and you were just like a kindred spirit to me. Maybe it was the days from uh, doing freestyle skiing. Or I don't know, but uh, I just go like, and then Ashley was telling me, yeah, Kyle does our underwriting. And that really surprised me. <laughs> I think that when you're, you know, hanging out with you and you have this big career, you were professional hockey player, which, right, like I didn't ever get even close to being professional. Any that, that's so few people that actually achieve that. It's just like, yeah, of course, everybody growing up, oh, you know, me, I'm going to be a professional freestyle skier or whatever it is, sports. When I, and nobody ever achieves that. Like it's, it's just so rare. So you actually achieve this, you win you love it. and typical hockey players, right. They're just mean, they're rough. They're out there skating, beating people up. Right. Um, I don't know. Why. You could say it meatheads. That's what, yeah, that's what meatheads. you Okay. There we go. There we go. <laughs> <laughs> you know, I just didn't expect you to be the, uh, be an underwriter. So when, when you started working and look at what I think, you know, that's such a big switch. For you, why why did you like underwriting? Like, what did, what did you like about that? Yeah, it was um, it, like I have uh, my background. I have a degree in physics, so um, which I did absolutely nothing with. Um, so I, I would say majority of of undergrad physics majors, uh, probably ninety five, even more percent of them go on to get higher education. They go into they get their doctorate, they go into engineering, they do something like that. But uh, I decided to. Uh, go play in the NHL instead. Um, so that, <laughs> uh, you know, I haven't really been able to do much with it, but I've always had a numbers background and um, underwriting to me, it's just a little bit more simple. It's one of those things where thing, the numbers work or they don't. Um, people, yeah. you know, people always talk about with real estate, uh, they go with their gut, they go with, you know, all these, you know, what their feelings are on properties and, and, you know, that's, that's not me. It's just, if the numbers work, the numbers work. And that's, if I have a bad feeling of it, it's because something didn't work in the numbers. And, um, it's just been a lot more simple to me. I'm, uh, it's, uh, I'm not your typical, like most people you'll have on shows like this is, you know, the, the entrepreneur and someone who's always trying to scale up and, and do things like that. Like that's, that's my wife. Uh, that's why people these days know me as Ashley Wilson's husband, um, you know, I'm the behind the scenes guys. Uh, I'm not always trying to scale up the business. I'm not trying to do stuff like that. I'm just, uh, you know, I'd rather not deal with people. Uh, I'm not really a people person in general. Um, so the, the numbers, they don't lie to you. They don't, uh, you don't have to manipulate them or play tricks or do all that different yeah. stuff and convince them to like you. They just, they just are where they are. So I've always been more comfortable with that. You know, it's funny because that actually was the thing that I gravitated, why I went into real estate, I was in sales, right? So I'm doing insurance sales and I was just so burnt out of the game. I was so burnt out of people saying one thing, doing it and the inconsistency, knowing that a client would fire me, not even tell me, not even know. It was like, and I, and I talk about it a lot. I was like on a treadmill, but it was a treadmill I had no control of because people are so uncontrollable. And I'm like, this is not like, being like, I'm like, I did want to scale. And I was like, this is just, I don't want to scale through people because of all the games, the inconsistency. And I'm like, I, I just can't, I don't know what I'm going to get. I don't know when I'm going to lose something. And it was real estate. It was like, we can underwrite it. We can measure it. If it works, it works. And then we can go do it again and just repeat. 
right? It was the simplicity of the wealth creation process in real estate to me was incredible. And I absolutely loved it. And it was there, like you said, there just weren't all these games, right? There wasn't all these and so many service-based businesses and it just burns you out. So I totally get that. I totally yeah, I mean, understand. some people thrive on it. Some people love make, meeting new people, making personal connections, doing all those different things. I'm more of the type of, you know, I have a few really good friends and I'm happy with that. I'm, I yeah. don't need to, to, to add anybody onto that. And, and, you know, that's not what drives me. So, uh, you know, they more power to the people who are like that. Cause I could never do that. Yeah. Now, um, talk to me about leaving professional sports and then going to you've you, cause you lived all over the place. Like, yeah. Where, where did you, you were in Germany for a long time, right? Well, so yeah, I was, um, so I was all over the U S first of all, uh, you know, I, I got bounced around my NHL dream teams traded me around. I went to their team, played for them, played in their minor league teams a lot of the times. And then, uh, went over and played in Russia for, for a little sure. while, uh, Latvia, um, which uh, Latvia is an underrated country. Uh, we, I loved it there. Um, and then we did, uh, Switzerland, Sweden, and Germany. So it's, um, it's a bit of a, a, you know, and I'm Canadian. So uh, as far as life, uh, life perspective and in, in, the, in the rest of the world, I have a, a bit of a more unique uh, outlook on, uh, on American life than, than most people do. Yeah. And I love that um, living it, you know, living in another country where, where you know, I lived multiple years um, in another country. It's really hard, I think, to um, express the differences and everything else. It gives it just widens your perspective so much. And I think that that's a skill, particularly with investing, particularly with doing real estate, that's vastly underrated. There's so many ways to go about and do things. And um, I mean, you went in a lot of places, dude. Like you're from Canada, you went all over Europe, all over America. The amount of people that you met, the amount of people that you saw. Um, I mean, well, and, and the know. funny thing about you saying that is that's such a American perspective because, like, yeah. if you go over to Europe. They've like all you moved can, everywhere. You can you could drive two hours and be in three different countries. So like yeah. people, you know, they it, that's two just hours natural. Takes me to the next city, right? That's exactly. only fifty thousand people. <laughs> you could you could drive for twenty four hours and still be in yeah. you know still be in the U.S. So like it's it's all perspective where you know like we talk about being cultured. I think is the the word that people like to use. Um, that's that's not even a thing in Europe, just because they they travel around so much and they you have to be cultured because you have to you know they I always love the joke where you know if you speak two languages you're bilingual if you speak three languages you're trilingual if you speak one language you're American like it's yeah. uh, it, it's just it's just a different perspective in that uh, you know it's hey, now I am bilingual so be careful <laughs> <laughs> well that's a, yeah and and you know I speak a little bit of French too and and uh, but I never I didn't learn every language that. I went to. Um, but it's a, it does, it, it, it definitely, um, you know, it's don't get me wrong. The, the U S is, is the best country in the world, but, um, it is, uh, as far as 
the, you know, the culture and, and these, these little things, um, people tend to have their, their, you know, closed minded perspective of what the way the world works based on just their American, um, you know, life. Yeah. hundred percent. I mean, you know, there's certain things that I, I think, and one of the big things that I gained from living in a country, which was very different from the countries you lived in, right? I lived in a country that is uh, extraordinarily plagued with poverty. And coming from my bubble, Idaho, like, you're right, I'm in this... I'm in this bubble, Boise, Boise, Idaho, growing up. My family were all farmers, and Boise, Idaho was teeny, especially when I was growing up. Like, we had to go to, I didn't even live in Boise. I lived in a place in Meridian. I hunted in my backyard, and I had to drive to go down to Boise, the next city over, to go to a movie. Right. right. And, and, and back was, back in those days, like Boise was like the butt of the joke of like the uh, yes. you know, middle of nowhere. It's not the Boise nowhere. that it is now where everyone knows where Boise is. Yeah. No, no. To, for us to get to a city that had over like 15,000 population, it took six hours, six hours drive. And my family made fun of me because I was a city slicker. Right. So like, you know, this is isolated. Right. And uh, it's obviously changed a lot. But going from that to a city that has 25 million people and was plagued in poverty, you know, all of a sudden we I grew up in a place that poverty didn't really exist. That wasn't a thing. Right. It just wasn't. And a lot of people didn't understand. And when I came home, I realized a lot of people don't understand what a poverty cycle is. And it was like for us and a lot of people where I lived, it was like people are choosing to live in poverty. And then I went to Brazil and it was like, no, there is no choice here. Right. This is systemic. They have no opportunity, which made me, first of all, extraordinarily grateful for where I lived. But it also expanded my horizon of understand situational um, poverty. And that's just those perceptions. It can be really hard to explain to people that have never experienced and especially in America where we're so big you don't have the ability to just drive across the border and it's a totally different culture lifestyle pros and cons we just don't see that yeah I mean that's also one of the funny things about real estate though too is that like there's so many different backgrounds everyone is doing this no one I shouldn't say no one, but majority of people didn't like study to be a real estate investor. No. They they were they had other plans. They were doing some other job. They were living somewhere else. And they, you know, for one way or another, their their life pushed them into real estate investing. Yes. And there's there's so many diverse backgrounds and so many different perspectives that, you know, I, I guess that's why there's so many real estate podcast out there that could stay interesting because every story is different and every, yeah. every, every person that comes in is going to, you know, they're not just going to be like, Oh, I, I was an engineer and I hated my job and I, you know, look for a way out and listen to the bigger pockets podcast. Like not everyone's like that. Everyone's got to yeah. have a, um, you know, a, a different, different background. So that's, uh, you know, that's, it's a great thing about uh, talking to real estate investors is you can always you know, meet somebody new with a new story. Yeah. It, you know, it's interesting you say, cause it, I love that idea and it's so true. So many real estate investors were pushed into it and they have all these situations in life that were completely different and yet they find this commonality within real estate, but they didn't go to get a degree in it. They didn't go, they didn't grow up thinking like, yeah, I, I didn't know what storage facilities were when I was growing yeah. up. I literally, I didn't even, I didn't know what they were. It was, it, that was not something I thought I was going to be this insurance guy 
even after having kids and everything and starting in real estate, it was like, yeah, this is a side thing. But this isn't what you do when you grow up. And then it turns out that's all I do. Right. I yeah, so, so much to create a, a school or something that's geared towards entrepreneurs. That would be <laughs> that would be a great, great idea so that everyone doesn't just get pigeonholed into the one, you know, the one path of life. I should uh, uh, probably talk uh, talk to somebody about that. Maybe my wife who's sitting right over there. <laughs> uh, yeah, no, it's true. And um, I think that in real estate, one of the things that it the, the reason though why people gravitate towards that is real estate is basically problem solving, right? I mean, we're just, all morning we sat and we were looking at we're doing a development project. And we're working with everything from cities to architects and everybody, everybody's throwing problems and you have to figure out how to get this thing through and how to get it done. There isn't a clear path forward and nobody's giving you one. In fact, right. it's the opposite. They're giving you obstacles and saying, if you overcome all of these obstacles, if you figure out a way to get around what we want, if you can get sewer from over here, nobody's doing it for you. There's nobody's going to do it for you. We don't even care that you do it. In fact, we're giving you obstacles you have to get around. And our job is to just figure out how to do it, yeah. how to get through. I would say majority of successful real estate people, they're, they're, they're not really in it because of the real estate. They're in it because they are really good problem solvers, really good business people. I always talk about, um, I, I talked to Ashley, my wife, about uh, her partner is Jay Scott, which many people have mm -hmm. heard of. Yep. And people would associate him as a as a real estate guy. But once, you know, we've spent a ton of time together now and he's, I wouldn't call him a real estate guy. He's a, he's a, a business builder and a problem solver. Yep. That's where he thrives is building the business and, and solving the problems. He's just realized that real estate is a really good business. Yep. Uh, you know, you're, it's tough to <laughs> so find a better a better business than real estate. And, you know, but people like that, people like Ashley, my wife, people like you, people like Jay, if you put them in another business, they would still find a way and they would still yeah. find, get creative and build that business and do a great, a great thing. And um, that's just, you know, just real estate is just a, a great business. That's, that's all what it comes down to. A hundred percent. So I was, it's funny you even say that. I literally I was sitting this morning and um, we have clients, right, that are business. I own a, an insurance brokerage firm right now. That was my background. I really don't do a whole lot in it anymore. I just do real estate now. Um, so my dad runs that. He's the CEO as of January 1. I stepped completely out of it. I was like, I don't have um, but Congratulations. Thank you. Yeah, that was a good move. Hmm. Uh, and um, I just focused 100% on, on, on um, real estate. But when we were looking at, when I was looking at all the clients and I, since I was young in my early twenties, I was working with business owners and I got to see their business models. Right. Yeah. And this morning I was, it was some, one of my clients or something like that. And I was just sitting there, they were talking about him. I was like, man, it would suck to be in that business. Like there's all these business models that I thought, if you could be in business in any business, why would you choose that one? Right. Why would you choose that business model? It's a horrible business model. <laughs> you well, work endlessly. Yeah. There's teeny margins. There's always problems. You're always going to go out of business. And I think smart problem solving people figure that out. And then they look at real estate and they're like, what? Like, this is that easy. It is that like, and I, I don't mean easy, but it's just a good business model. Yeah. Well, there's always that eye-opening thing, right? Like a lot of a lot of people, it's taxes. Like a lot of people, once they look at real estate investors and they're like, wait, how much you pay in taxes? And you're like, uh, nothing. And they're like, 
but I paid 50%. And you're like, yeah, that's, you know, kind of the way the system's set up. We just chose to be on this side of it. That's, that's one of the, you know, the big reasons that people do it. And even passive investing, like we, you know, you're syndicating now too, like you bring these, these people into these syndications and, you know, they can, at the end of the year, they're like, oh, geez, I have a big tax hit. They, they invest and they get, you know, 30, 50% back just on the tax write-off that year. Um, it's, uh, you know, w- there's little things like that. That's w- once, once your eyes are open to that, you're like, why have I been doing it that way? And, um, you know, it, it gets back to, you know, there's a lot of people that's, that's just what they fell into, you know, it's, you know, whether it was a family yeah. business or it was, you know, they went to school and got a job and one of those things, but like, you know, when we're and you're, you're the same way, like when we're planning for our kids future, like we aren't planning for them to go to college. We're going to, um, you know, you have all these college savings plans. We're setting up, uh, an IRA instead, you know, a Roth IRA for our kids instead of a college savings plan. So by the time they're 18, they're going to have, you know, money that they could do whatever they want with. If they want to take a, uh, you know, it's one of the, one of the allowed, allowed withdrawals is for, for a house. They could do a rental property. They could take that money and go to school. They could do whatever they want to do with it, but they don't have to go to college. And that was, that was the difference coming from, you know, I had two school teachers as, as parents, they, um, you know, their path that they took is they got good grades, went to school, did some higher education and then got a job. Um, you don't have to do that. Like that's, yeah. uh, just because that's what everyone is told to do. That's not exactly what you have to do. And that's not the way we're pushing our kids either. No, us, us too. hundred percent. It's like you, you know, tell, tell the kids, you don't have to have a job. You can create jobs or you can create a lifestyle that you want to live. You can get a job. That's fine. There's nothing wrong with it. I have jobs. I had worked and everything. Um, and it's a great way to get into it, but at the end of the day, you need to create the life you want to live. You need to be in power, right? You need to be driving your own life. If that is a job, that's fine, but that's not the only option. And it's, I think a lot of people, even like you're saying, they, they don't see that. They don't even know that there's something else. Up. There's another pathway. They don't know that there's another option. It's just the system is set up that I go in, I'm spit out to do this. And then I do that till I die. Right. And that is really demoralizing, I think, for most people. In fact, if you find a lot of real estate investors that are like halfway through that cycle, they're 35, 40, and they're like, oh, this, this doesn't work. I, I'm burnt out. I'm done. Now, you were different, though. You loved what you did, right? I'm, well, yeah, like it's, but it was uh, it was still a job, though. That's <laughs> that's one of the one a common misconception. I get I mean, when when I was 22, 23. Yeah, it was amazing. Like this is, you know, I for my entire life before that, I just played hockey. And, um, you know, in college, they I guess they kind of paid me to play hockey. Uh, you know, I got a free education and, and whatnot. And even before that, I didn't really have to pay to play. Um, but that was the first time that like I was just playing hockey and people were giving me money for it. And so life was great. It was amazing. And then um, you kind of realize that it's, it's a business like anything else. Someone owns that business. Um, They want to make a profit and you're as a player, you're basically their commodity and, and just how priced, how high priced of a commodity you are determines how well they treat you. Um, and so if you're not one of those really high paid guys, like I was kind of a, uh, lower end NHL guy, I was up and down in the minors. I was, you know, some would say expendable as far as the NHL is concerned. 
Um, I could be replaced, replaced by some other similar person. And so I got traded a lot. I got, um, you know, I moved around, I signed contracts with a bunch of other different people and you realize it becomes like a numbers game. It was, it was a, it was a weird thing where I had a bonus that I was supposed to hit. Um, and, uh, it was, it was like a, you know, like a $15,000 bonus or something. And, um, if, if, you know, the team didn't call me up for this amount of time, then they'd have to just pay me that $15,000 at the end of the year, just write me a check for it. Um, so they ended up calling me up for a, um, a one week West coast swing. The entire, entire road trip was one week. And, um, long story short, at the end of it, I looked at the difference between my paycheck, what it would have been and my paycheck, because I spent that one week swing and the difference was $14,500. So someone had figured out that, you know, we're going to have to pay this guy the $15,000 anyway, at the end of the season, why not? Why don't we use them for this road trip and, and bring them up for that road trip? So it's little things like that, that you realize, okay, they don't really care about me that much. Yeah. And, and it becomes a job and like, you're, you know, I was getting injured a lot too. You're putting your body through a lot. Um, I'm traveling all over the place. And once again, 23, 24, traveling all over the country, traveling all the world. It's great. You love it. Um, but then you get older, you, you know, you get married, you have a family, um, you know, it wasn't, uh, you know, when my wife was pregnant with our first kid, I was, I was in deep Russia. Um, uh, it's yeah. not exactly the best situation to, uh, to, to raise a family in. So, uh, you know, you start making decisions based on that. And, um, by the end it's, it's a job and that's, that's honestly, that's why I retired. Um, I could have kept playing. Uh, I had offers, good offers to play, uh, other places, but, um, Ashley had already kind of gotten our real estate machine rolling. Um, the opportunity had worked out that, uh, somebody in her, you know, sphere was moving on to other things and that they needed to replace that with somebody. And I figured out, sure, I wasn't going to make as much money, um, coming into the real estate business as I was playing hockey, but I wouldn't have to pack up my whole family, move overseas, go, I think it was Finland where's where I would have had to go. Um, you know, it's cold there. I had a 10 year old dog that I was having to sneak on the plane as an emotional support animal. Uh, like it was, it was just this whole thing. And, uh, once you, once you, as I said, I'm a numbers guy, once you're looking at it, what's that worth to you? What's it worth, uh, you know, putting your body through that? What's it worth putting your family through that? Then, you know, the, the Delta between what I could make staying here and actually buying a house and, and living in it for the foreseeable future and raising a family that Delta just didn't make sense anymore. So that's, uh, that's, that's why I, retired, I guess is the thing. I always have the conversation with people. What's the, what's the difference between quitting and retiring? Um, but, uh, yeah, so that's, that's why I decided to retire and, and go into real estate. You know, um, I, I think I've told you about, uh, one of my best friends, he was a Olympic skier and, um, the, that was his game. He traveled, right. He was on the Olympic ski team and the year that he was up and, you know, a lot of people don't understand that being on the Olympic ski team, unless you're, you know, gold medalist, you don't really make money. It's right. It's there's oh, none, none of those Olympic athletes. Do. No, there's one person that makes anything. And so they're all striving to be that one person. And it was like the year in Sochi that he was going to, um, he was scheduled up. He was going to be in the top three, right? It's like his whole life and training and he blew his knee. Yeah. And now he's doing real estate. Cause he's like, 
what yeah you know and he talks like in time right and everything and it's just like you said it was a job right and it was a job with this idea that there's this big payout there's this end goal that he could hit and a lot of times that's exactly how everybody lives right i have a job with the end goal that i'm going to retire right and then i'm going to retire on some amount that means i don't have to work right right and it just feels like that's a fabrication. Yeah. Well, and, and that's what like we actually, I talked about it, whether or not we should get more involved in trying to get um, athletes into real estate, just because um, as far as an athlete is concerned, like there's no one, most, most of them actually, like you don't get a great education because you, you start pretty young. Um, you know, many, many hockey players, they didn't go to college. And if they did, they left early. Um, my buddy didn't go to college. Right. And, um, yeah, exactly. And it doesn't, and I was just lucky enough to be in a sport that, you know, is accepted, um, by our culture as, uh, you know, worthy for people to spend a lot of money on that. I, so I got paid relatively well, but if you're, you know, Olympic athlete, if you're one of these other sports, you could be, you know, one of the top in the world. And, you know, I was number 150, maybe in the world, and I'm going to make a lot more money than you, even if you're the best in the world. Yeah. Um, so that, you know, I was fortunate in that, in that sense. Um, but, uh, at the same time, like, you know, we'll go through these careers and majority of these, these athletes, they won't make enough money to just not work again. So you're going to have to find a job and what are you going to do when you're 30 and you have no job skills, no resume, um, you know, maybe not a full education, um, like, where are you going to get a job? Um, and that's why a lot of people go back into the sport, become coaches and do stuff like that. Because, you know, the idea of going and starting your career at 30 and, you know, competing with these 22 year olds that are just fresh out of college. And, um, you know, the, you don't, you haven't really spent much time in the workforce and you're all of a sudden having to go into the, the office for eight hours plus a day. Um, that's, that's kind of a crazy concept of ha having somebody to do that. So, um, you know, maybe that'll be my philanthropy later in life that, uh, trying to yeah. convince athletes to get into real estate, because it is, you know, it, it is more along the lines of it's not set hours. You're having to travel, you're having to, you know, do all these different things. And, um, you know, if you have made a little bit of money along the way, um, that money can go a long way in real estate at the same time, you know? It's an interesting position to be in for athletes like yourself that basically gave their life to it from in lots of times from a very young age. It's all they did. And the lifespan for athletes, you know, it's generally not after 35. Right. And so all of a sudden, you're 35, which isn't old, and basically every waking moment of your life was centered around one thing that you know, you can't do anymore. And I, I don't think a lot of people can relate to that. Mentally. Yeah, I mean, I having your identity, that, like they, it's your whole identity. You're that guy or that girl, you know, that's, that's what you do. And then all of a sudden it's just, you know, you make that phone call to your agent and you're no longer that person. Uh, you're just a normal person. And, uh, you know, with, with some, some good stories, but other than that, like, you're just, just like everybody else, but you're, you're actually starting behind the eight ball because you don't have any of that work experience. You don't have any of those other things. So it's, it could be a really tough 
transition for a lot of people. And that's, you know, you hear people always think it's crazy that these athletes that make millions and millions of dollars are all of a sudden five, 10 years later declaring bankruptcy. Well, it's not, it's not that easy to just, you know, transition and you have a certain lifestyle and, and just to flip that switch and all of a sudden live like everybody else is living. Um, you know, I was fortunate enough that I, you know, I do have a modest background. Like, you know, my, as I said, my parents were school teachers, my dad's whole family are farmers. And, you know, I didn't, uh, I wasn't one of the number one draft picks either. So like I, I grinded it out a lot and I, I know the other side of it. So I knew, you know, this, you know, save as much money as you can along the way. And, um, but a lot of, a lot of athletes aren't so fortunate to have either a made the money up front or B if they didn't make the money, they don't know any better. So it's, um, you know, I was, I'm, I feel lucky that I, I, I did. Yeah. It too, you had, you made the choice, which is also, I think different. You've spent the time to think about it and say, no, I need to make this choice. A lot of them don't, they don't get that choice. Like you said, they call up their agent, their agent informs them. They right. blow a knee up. They, it is not their choice, which is, is that much harder. Um, now I love this idea too, by the way, of you, because if you think about most of these athletes, if they would just invest in some real estate along the way, that transition would be much easier because they'd have some stable income. They would have a whole lot of differences or a whole lot of opportunities that would come from that, um, which would be really helpful because there's a lot of them. Um, so I want to know when you, you mentioned something earlier before, and I want to bring it back down to this real estate, you talked about the tax advantages, right? And just even investing, right? So your investors that come in with you guys on the multifamily and they get these tax advantages, which I, I'm pretty sure the, but the tax advantages, particularly with the accelerated depreciation for multifamily, it's a lot better than what I do. Talk, so when you're underwriting a deal, how much do you include the benefits of the taxes within whether you should do a deal or not? Or is that included? Uh, well, it's it's a factor, but as far as um, including it for you know whether or not you should do a deal, I would say it's very secondary. Um, it, that that's one of those things where um, every everybody's situation is going to be different for their their tax advantages and what they are requiring. Um, you know, it's, and it's very, it's, it's dependent on where you are in the year or two and how much your capital improvements are and things like that. Um, just for instance, like we're, we're raising for a deal right now and that's our biggest pitch is because this deal is closing in December and, um, anybody who, you know, has that big tax hit for the, uh, for, you know, 2021, they could sneak into this deal in December and take you know a thirty percent write off right off right off the first day, but you know the disadvantage to that is one of the one of the best tax write offs is capital improvements, and because we're buying this in December, we're not able to do a lot of those capital improvements. So we're having to push uh, you know another twenty percent of those of that write off to year two, which you know isn't bad. Like you're still getting yeah. it, but at the same time, you know getting all that depreciation in in the first year. Um, that's one of the best things about bonus depreciation is you could take it right off the top, right, right, yeah. uh, right in the beginning. And the only, you know, there's there's not many avenues where you can get that kind of tax write off. Maybe oil and gas, they have pretty, they're pretty lucrative for their tax write offs. But um, you know, real estate's one of the only ones. Um, but it's it's one of those things where 
when we underwrite it, we underwrite it to make sure it's a good deal. And then, um, you know, the, the tax benefits come after kind of deciding how we're going to raise the money. You know, if yeah. it's if it's a great tax write-off, you're going to be targeting different people versus if yes. there's not a great tax write-off, it's more who you're targeting as far as investors are concerned. You know, and this is a really important point, especially for people looking to raise money, is understanding the motives and the benefits for investors. Um, you know, we you have some investors that they can invest, um, you know, into your deal, and all of a sudden their return on that deal they're automatically getting a 10% real return to them, right? Like it's, right. that's real. They actually get that money back in that uh, uh, in that next year. They got that return. Um, where other ones, they may not. I'm. They may not be in that tax bracket. So then they're looking at it very, very differently. And so one of the things that we, um, when we started looking at syndication, which I talked a lot with Ashley about and understanding right investors and who to attract and everything. And she really helped me out because I was kind of confused. Like, do we go the fund route to do this? But with individual investors, um, understanding what the benefits are to that property, that can vary. So we don't ever look like you're saying that the tax advantages are secondary. The deal just has to be a great deal. And I think a lot of individual investors, particularly high earners, they'll buy real estate um, just for the tax advantages. Right. And we can see this when people are buying, like that doesn't make money. And to that individual, he's like, oh, it makes me money because I get it right off the taxes. And I feel like a lot of them get burned because then the deal doesn't do good or something changes and now it's costing them money um, where, yes, I, I, I agree that's a great strategy, I mean, but it has to be secondary. Right. The deal has to be good. It has to work out. Yeah. And for me, a lot of people that want to buy real estate to get the tax advantages, but they don't know how to improve the property. They don't know how to do it. Like I tell them, why are you doing it yourself? Invest with somebody else. They already know it's a good deal. I mean, and you still get the tax advantages. Right. So like, just don't put yourself in harm's way to do that. Right. Now, other people are investing in real estate a lot differently. It's their livelihoods like you and me. And we actually are actively engaged. That's that's very, very different. But if you're putting a real estate deal together and you need to attract investors, it's important to know what will attract them. But don't make the tax reasons, number one. It should only be secondary to this is a great project and a great deal. Yeah. Real, real estate guys always say, don't let the tax tail wag, wag the dog is their kind of their line. Um, yep. But it's, I would still say the majority of investors, they're looking at that bottom line. They're looking at the, um, they're looking at the returns. There's just, there is the, you know, but there is that person, especially, as I said, you know, for a deal that's closing in December, they're meeting with their tax advisor in, in November, December. And they're like, geez, I have a huge tax exposure. Uh, what am I going to do? And, you know, they're going to look at one deal that has a 15 IRR, one deal that has a 12 IRR, but the 12 IRR is giving them a 50% depreciation in year one. They might choose that one just because, yeah. uh, you know, that's, uh, you know, at the, at the end of the day, that might be their number one driving force. But, you know, Ashley always says, when you're looking at a deal, like that's, that should be so far down the list. When you're looking at the deal, yeah. number one, you're looking at the operator. Like that's, yes. you know, it, it doesn't matter what returns they're quoting if they're not a good operator. Yep. You know, they have to hit those returns. So your number one should always be the operator, then the market, because you have to be comfortable with the market, whatever the, uh, you know, whatever 
the the path of progression in that market is is it losing jobs versus gaining jobs is it you know population is it you know what's the uh what's the tenant landlord friendliness things like that um or even you can look at like a pandemic just look at uh, what happened in the pandemic what how the different states handled it um there's any state that was landlord friendly did a lot better as far as as uh, as, as real estate's concerned and and then the third thing down the line is that's when you're looking at the returns and then probably fourth is taxes you can move taxes above the returns if you want but you should still be picking operator market first um even if your taxes are becoming you know big enough that that's you know determining where you want to uh, invest Dude, that is so, okay, that is just so crucial for people to understand. And I like to say, listen, as good as I am as an operator, um, I can't win in a bad market. So the best operator will lose in a bad market, but a bad operator can lose even in a good market. Right. And so those two, that relationship between those two things, good operators in good markets are home runs. Yep. They're home runs. Um, and good operators and bad markets are, are failures. And bad operators, are, are that's just risky no matter what. At that point, you're just betting and hoping that things go up and mistakes aren't made. So that order in which it, it's, it, it's perfect. And I like to look at it and say, we control everything that we can control. We measure out and we do everything. But I can't fight, because I can't fight against the market, if that market isn't going to be that those wins in our cellar, you just got to walk away. It's just not even worth it because that's uncontrollables yeah. and you just can't win against it. And I mean, the, the problem that we're getting into these days is that, you know, we've been going through a pretty good cycle here and yes. it's, it's difficult to determine a, who's a good operator because everyone's got a good track record these days. Yep. Um, you could, you could go in and have no idea what you're doing. You could, buy a property and just pass it off onto the property management company and not know how to operate a property at all. And you probably gave your investors, you know, 15, 20, sometimes 30 plus returns just because cap rates have been compressing and they continue to compress. And every time we say cap rates aren't going to compress anymore, there's no way they're going to go down. down. They just keep going down. And so, you know, this, this tide keeps bringing all the ships up and, it doesn't matter even bad markets too. Those bad markets, the cap rates are still compressing and those bad markets as well. So it's, um, it's. I, I think a lot of people who have been investing with these, these operators, they've gotten a little complacent. They're just throwing money at people without really knowing the process versus, um, you know, making sure, okay, is this the type of person who's going to say, look, we're, when we per, when we buy this property, we have a dedicated team who's going to make sure that every day we're we're on top of this property, we're taking care of this property, we're not just passing off the property management and hoping for the best. And um, you know, that's I I think you know I, I keep saying it's gonna, it's going to catch up with people, but it doesn't. And you know, based on my outlook and what's uh, what's happening in the next few years, I don't think it's going to happen for another few years as well. But at the same time, I still think you should be finding somebody who focuses on, on operations instead of just where's the next deal you could buy. No, I, this is such an important point. I, I can't stress this enough, especially, you know, in my industry that is a relatively new industry, right? Like prior to 08, there just wasn't, there wasn't very many people in it. And now you have a flood of operators just in the last few years, literally the last three years. And they're, they're buying things at hundreds of millions of dollars 
and they'd never been in it before. And they're using the last three years and, and they're saying like, look at our track record. And you're like, this was the best three years for self-storage of any time period and in of any asset class. If you failed in storage in the last three years, you must have died because <laughs> I don't know how you could have, right? right? And yet they're going out and it's just like, it's because of our track records. because And that makes it really confusing for people right. because they're going, yeah, but they're numbers. And it's like, well, the numbers have to be in context to what the market did, right? So what? how do you break those things apart? Like, What would you say to people? They're like, how do I tell the differences? How do I look at different operators and truly analyze what was their role in it? And what was simply the market? And it's just, I mean, maybe I don't know if there is really a good. Yeah, it's, it's tough because, you know, they get, uh, you would normally say, okay, let's, you know, let's take a, what your previous pro forma business plans were and compare it to what actually happened. And, you know, did that, did that come to fruition? But the problem is, is that, you know, no one's going to give you that. No one's, no one's going to say, okay, that was a, they're all, it's, that was a confidential deal. I'm not, I'm not going to, you know, divulge financials on a, on, on a previous uh, deals. I'm just going to be able to talk about returns. So I guess it's, um, you know, when, when you get back to it, it's just asking the right questions. Like, what do you, you know, does, does this operator really know what they're talking about? Do they focus on certain things? Um, you know, are they in the day-to-day trenches or are they just, you know, an acquisitions machine? That's, that's all, you know, when you, when you talk about people giving, getting gurus a bad name, it's because they teach you to be an acquisitions machine. If you take any of these guru courses, many, I would say majority of them, if not all of them, don't talk about operations. Like they, 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 they teach you what the overall concept is of, of and just go buy. Know, purchasing, let's say apartments, because that's what we're in. Um, they they teach you how to evaluate them. They teach you how to talk to brokers. They teach you how to market. They teach you how to do all those different things. And then they say, now you know everything there is to know to purchase an apartment. And that's it. They, yeah. they, they teach you everything yeah. there is to know to purchase an apartment. Yeah. And that's a, da- that's a very dangerous thing. Just yeah. because uh, all of these, you know, they've all been getting lucky because even if they run this thing poorly, the value, the appreciation, you know, which is basically cap rates going down and rents going up, the has has bailed them out. Like that's yeah. I, now I keep saying this; it's not going to go on forever, and it does keep going on. But there is going to be a time. Some, there will be a right. time. There always is. Right, yes. and especially these days, because like when you you know something like the pandemic, and you saw this with self storage, self storage um, apartments. Uh, industrial. Um, there were other asset classes who did that did not do well in in the pandemic. You know, you're looking at office, retail, stuff like that. And there's a lot of money in that. And there's a lot of people who who have a lot of money looking for places to invest that are skittish about all these other places. And that's why we're seeing self storage. You get these big players coming in self storage. You get these big players all of a sudden throwing a ton of money, pushing cap rates down in apartments, and it's making people who are competing with the big boys, the big boys are going to be fine. They're, yep. you know, they're, they have millions, billions of dollars in these things. If a couple assets, you know, don't perform that well, you know, you know, they diversify it across their entire portfolio and they're fine. Um, but if you have these, you know, smaller operators who don't know what they're doing 
and they're all of a sudden have to push their offers, push their, you know, their cap rate projections, push their occupancy projections, push their rent projections, all of these things to compete with, you know, big box national buyers. When, when things go poorly, they're not going to have the reserves. They're not going to have these things and they're going to lose properties. So um, it's, it's a, it's a, it's a scary time in that sense, but at the same time, as I, I alluded to before, I think we got a couple of years ahead of us before we start seeing any problems in your industry and in my industry I agree. And, and a couple others. So, you know, it, uh, I tell people and I say this a lot, when you're looking at people, when you're looking at deals, when you're looking at people to invest with, the number one thing to me, and it's very clear as an operator, and you will know exactly what I mean, is the asset, the investor, or the real estate. So to the person that you're investing with, are you the way they make money? Or is it the real estate? Meaning, not just there's fees or anything else like that, but they're acquisition specialists that get as many deals as they can because they make all their money on fees and performance matters actually very little. And they need to feed the beast. So we have very we have a lot of operators right now in our industry that are buying massive deals because they have to. Right. Without the fees, they're laying people off. So yeah. at some point, it doesn't even matter anymore. We just have to buy. And then I look at them and say, now you investing with them, who's really the business? Who's their asset? Right. It's not the deal. It's the sales pitch to you. Well, and the, at the end of the day, you're not like people say we're buying real estate. We're not buying real estate. We're we're buying a business. You're yes. like an apartment complex isn't real estate in the sense of you know the traditional what people think real estate is. It's a business. You're buying you know you're buying off of past financials. You're buying off of net operating income. You're buying off of what you know future net operating income is. That's a business. Even businesses are, are valued by cap rates the same way. Yep. So um, you you don't. Like when you're talking about, okay, um, I'm investing in a piece of real estate. No, you're investing in a business. And what makes a business successful is the people running the business. People running the business. The only difference is, is that this business is backed by real estate technically. But if the business on top of the real estate fails, the the, the real estate's going to fail just like any other business. So, um, you know, when, when we talk about investing in stocks, investing in Apple, investing in that, it's the, you know, it's the same thing. You're investing in the, the culture that Ap- Apple has, has placed around themselves to be a good business. You should be thinking of investing in a, an apartment syndication or a self-storage syndication or whatever, investing in it the same way. You're investing in a business, yeah. not, not a piece of real estate. No, I, I just couldn't agree more. You know, you look at even when you're acquiring businesses, there's so much weight placed on who's running them. So um, when we would buy or sell businesses, the contracts were contingent on the people in some way, shape or form that were running those businesses. So it's like, well, we have an earn out, but I don't have to pay you the full amount until a certain period of time. And if you leave, I don't have to pay you. We got to hedge our bets against that those people not performing or leaving because the model is so dependent on the execution. And this idea that you just mentioned that people are like, oh, you're investing in real estate. What you're doing is you're taking all the all that that pressure that 
as when we look at businesses and buy businesses on that operator and say they don't matter because the real estate's the only thing that matters, right? So for some reason now, we don't need to think about that. And that would be ludicrous to Crazy. purchase a business in that way. That would be suicide. Right. But for some reason, we make up an excuse that because it's a real estate, it doesn't matter. And that is so dangerous. Well, yeah. And, and I look at it as it's a cap rate thing, right? So yeah. um, pe- most common misconception in real estate is cap rates. Pe- people don't Absolutely. really understand them. They don't, don't really get, get how they work and, and whatever. But but at the end of the day, the cap rate is just how people judge risk. So when you when you talk about, so let's bring it back to a business. When you talk about if you're buying a car wash, then you know that that's going to have a cap rate on it. You're going to have they're going to have a, a net operating income just like an apartment of self storage, and you have to evaluate that income that they're doing, and so you're going to have a higher cap rate. You're going to evaluate that at a ten cap rate. Well, the reason that that's a ten cap rate and that you know my apartment is a four cap rate is just because of the the risk associated with making that income and you know, a, a business that is based on an apartment is much easier and much more stable than a car wash. So that's why people are willing to pay a four cap rate. That's just like, it's just what your return expectation is based on how much risk is there. I'm willing to make 40% as much as a car wash, just because of how stable of a business buying an apartment complexes versus buying a car wash. And that's, you know, people talk about cap rates all the time and like it's this mystical thing. It's just, it's just a risk adjusted value, you know, based on what you, you know, how much money you want to make. And I'm going to even add another one onto it. Investors get really confused between opportunities and the cap rate that it directly correlates with a good deal. So perfect example. We're, if I'm buying a storage facility, right, and I'm the highest bidder, which turns out to be a four cap in a market that um, that's the lower cap rate that, that they've seen. And somebody's like, well, I have another operator that's buying a five or a six cap over here. So I'm going to go with him. Right. And I go, OK, so now let me ask you this. What's your return going to be? You say cap rate's a better deal. What's your return going to be? Because on this deal, the upside potential is 30% under market rates, where that deal, it's at the top of market rates. There's nowhere for it to go. Right. So a 30% increase in revenue, what does that make that internal rate of return? Or what does that make your return? Right. And then they stop and they think about it and they're like, oh, holy cow, it's triple the right. return. Well, the easy way to explain to someone like that too is, is by using occupancy, Right. So yeah. I'll use an example of, you know, two apartments that, that we're placing offers on. Um, and one of them we're placing an offer on and it's a four cap and another we're placing offer on is a 2.5 cap. And someone would be like, that's crazy. Why would you ever, pay, you know, offer on a property that's a 2.5 cap? Well, it's 43% occupied and $600 under rent for, for the values. It is just extremely poorly run. So, yes. and you know, you have to pay a premium. So they, I guess, you know, in an ideal world, yes, okay, they're not making that much money. Um, we're not going to pay as much for the business, but other it's people you. are going to see the potential. Well, and, and the problem is it's you. It's not a 2.5 cap to you. Right. Right? It's not. It's a six cap or whatever you, so you're going to lift that occupancy. 
you're going to increase those rates. You're going to improve the asset. You're going to stabilize revenues. Now it's safer at a much higher revenue. So that cap rate for you as a good operator is not the same as that cap rate to the current existing operator. And right. people have a hard time getting their heads around that. Oh, for sure. And 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 that asset in particular, that was a uh, downtown asset. It was a mid nineties. It was very nice, very like um, like well built, and it was just the the second the second person. It was an overseas who bought it. Overseas uh, uh, money who came in and bought it, and they were just buying it as a value a, a value play. They knew the area was it was growing. They knew they and they just didn't care, and that's why we are willing to pay a two, two and a half cap for it. We can get that thing to 90% occupied. We can get those rent bumps. And then all of a sudden at the end of the day, when we reevaluate it and the market at the four cap, then we are going to make a ton of money on this. So if you're not willing to spend less on the going in cap rate, like we don't even look at cap rates when we purchase. We don't either. We don't care. Like cap rates to me don't matter. It doesn't, all. you know, it, cap rates are for stabilized assets that REITs are buying and they're not doing a value-add strategy. There's, you, it, it doesn't matter what you're going in cap rate. And the only reason you should worry about the cap rate is for your exit cap, what you are predicting, which that's a whole nother topic about guessing what exit cap rates are going to be and how big of a... Or a, a disposition of asset. Like I love I love that when people are looking at the different um, offerings and they're like, oh yeah, but uh, on this one, my internal rate of return is 25% in five years. And I you, you look at it and you go, okay, but they're selling it at a three cap in five years for this huge number or whatnot. And I'm like, where did they get those numbers? Right. Oh, they made them up. Yeah. Well, no, they, they, and so that, that's what I go back to. So the standard operating practice or the standard underwriting practice is you, you uh, decompress the cap rate. So in, in, in essence, if you're holding the, the property for five years, let's say you, um, you know, your, your entrance cap rate is a four, then you're going to decompress the cap rate to four and a half. So you're going to say the cap rates are going to go up to four and a half in that five years for this asset and I'm going to be able to exit at a four and a half. But that's the, the common misconception is they, they do it based on the entrance cap rate. So just like that example, if I bought that property at a two and a half cap rate, I'm not going to underwrite the exit at a three cap. Just because I bought it at a two and a half, the market yeah. currently is still a four. So yeah. I'm going to have to decompress that to four and a half. So I'm going to have an entrance at two and a half and I'm going to have an exit at four and a half. But that it's... The, the fact that there are people buying 10, $20 million properties and don't understand that concept, that in itself That's is extremely scary. Very scary. And this comes back down to one of the main things and why when you said, and, and your list was perfect, first operator, second market, because when people are looking at these numbers, they look at these numbers like it actually happened. It actually right. happened. And they're like, oh, this, this is exactly my return. This is how it's going to work. And then you find out that all the games in the end and the cap rates and stuff. And so anybody listening to this might be like, I don't even know what to think of you. That's why when Kyle said the operator is the first thing you look at, because the operator depends on how those cash flows are improved, how occupancy will work, the likelihood of what is written out actually occurring to their projections. It all depends on the operator. And at the end of the day, they're projections and projections are what? Projections. 
They're guesses. They're guesses. We're, we're, we're now they're educated guesses. Like we yeah. could take a historical performance. We could take similar properties in the area. We could do all these different things. I, I mean, at the end of the day, you know, we can call them projections, but basically they're guesses, right? They're, they're educated guesses, but they, we are guessing what the performance is going to be in the future. We could look at, you know, previous financials, trailing T12, trailing three years. We can look at, you know, how other properties are performing and we can relatively accurately predict in the future what we're going to be, but these are made up numbers. And, made up numbers. and at the end of the day, if, if they're, you know, people can be aggressive on those numbers or push those numbers, as they say, and that's them just guessing that it's going to do better than, you know, what they really should be guessing. And so you can make these, you know, if, if I wanted to take my last deal and instead of projecting a 14 IRR, if I wanted to change a few numbers and make it, you know, be an 18 IRR, I could do that very easily. And I could make it so yes. that 99% of the population wouldn't even notice what I did, but that's, you know, that's very short-sighted thinking and you getting back to, you know, the, this comment about people buying properties for fees. If, if you are, if you're basing your business off of making that quick dollar on the fr fr front end, then, you know, you've been bailed out in the past, but eventually that's going to catch up with you. Well, and, and you know, so me coming into syndication, right? This was a couple of years ago. The, my entire real estate history we didn't take other people's money. So we were evaluating deals solely on a cash flow that it was going to bring in to us and how much we were going to get that we could pay our people, right? So our operating, so the profit from the property that it had to also pay our operating and then had to give us profit to reinvest. So we were simply looking at maximizing profits and we weren't selling. So there, we didn't ever have projections of right. what, what the cap rate would be in five, 10 years. It didn't matter. There was, there was no point. We didn't even look at it like that. We only cared. We didn't care what cap rates were. And when we started buying properties, I didn't know what cap rates were. We were simply looking at what the price is, what's the revenue, because I was evaluating it like a business. And how can I improve that revenue? Then when we started syndicating, all these investors started having weird questions. Right. And I'm like, why does that matter? No, why is your internal rate of return lower? Well, we, we're not selling it. So why do we put it? And all of a sudden I'm like, wait, what are other people doing? And then I started looking at other people's projections and then I'd take their stuff and I'd look at the market. I'm like, where do they come up with that? Where did they get that rents are going to be X? That doesn't even exist. And it was very eye-opening to me. Yeah. Right. And then I had to figure out, okay, how do I explain this to investors that first of all, we're looking at a cash flow basis. I'm looking at what exists in the markets, the spread in between. Um, none of our numbers have anything that's made up. In fact, too, some of our numbers on existing that came back, the internal rate of return was way too high. So I'm like, hey, we can't show that. Yeah, oh, for sure. I'm like, we can't show that. That's got to be much, much lower. <laughs> but it was, this was new to me in the last two years that I didn't understand that there were real estate people out there and their funds. So they were playing this game. Yep. And um, I don't think a lot of people know or understand that. I don't well, think and, and you, you touched on that too. We, we had to, you know, we don't have to deal with that anymore, but um, in the beginning, that's what, you know, we had the one deal where we had to reduce our returns just because anybody coming from any other asset class does not get the concept of, you know, we, we can predict to have returns into the low mid teens, you know, even high teens sometimes. And, you know, if you're coming from a stock market investor, like they're, they're like, Oh, this is a scam. 
they'll, yeah. they'll say they'll say this is a scam because they they don't understand it now you know with the, the way the current market's going that's that's becoming less of a problem but at the same time like it's it, you know when you try and compare that to any other business then the the concept of it like it's tough for for normal people to wrap their head around so to try and have somebody coming from just a normal investor you know you go after doctors lawyers people like that who aren't in the business and then you have operators and and sponsors who don't really get the concept themselves then it's it's tough for an investor to kind of figure that out like you know they're not going to get cap rates because people who are in the business aren't understanding it themselves so it's a it's a kind of a um a vicious cycle that just kind of trickles all the way down to um just an overall inability to explain kind of what's going on just because there's been so much money pouring into it and so much money pouring out of it that no one really cares well and there's other business models too that they're not describing to investors so i know another firm where their idea is a cap rate compression based upon who's buying so what that means is i know that if i could get a portfolio value and sell at a lower cap rate right that I can get that spread. So their only goal is to acquire everything they can. They're just literally buying as many deals as they can. The fundamentals, I mean, you're talking about, we're underwriting the same deals going, you're paying 20% over what we even thought was reasonable. Like it's mind boggling. And the reason being is it's a justification that the end result justifies the current price. And that is a scary game to me because what's happening is they're simply saying, I'm buying this at a four cap, but over 10, over five years, as the revenue rises, plus my ability to package it as one single thing and sell it to a big firm, that's going to create a really good spread, right? And then I will get that. Now, if that doesn't play out, this isn't good at all. In fact, this is a bad investment. But they justify the today's buying with an event that will occur at the end. I don't mean to say that that event won't happen. It's not what I'm saying. What I'm saying, though, is the justification for purchasing deals that you shouldn't be buying at that rate is scary to me. I, I, maybe I'm just not, but I'm like, that doesn't make any sense to me. Because it well, doesn't always play out that way. I here's a concept. 100% of the business plans you've ever had for every property you own has been wrong. Yeah. You've oh, you yeah, have never had you have never had a business plan that, that went exactly the way you planned it. You never no. sold it on the day you you were, you were projecting. You never got the rents you were projecting. You never had the expenses you were projecting. So and and well and, and do you know what is really shows how the industry is is that we can't show investors what our 10-year projections are i have 10-year projections i have a plan for what happens if we have to hold this property for 10 years but we can't show those to investors because investors are from the expectations that everything that's been going on for the last 10 years investors can't don't want to have their money in for longer than five years so the fact that i'm even planning for a 10-year scares them away that oh no i don't want to have my money tied up for 10 years but to me like yeah i have an exit plan for year two year three year four year five and year 10 
Like that's, that's, all, that's, I run every single one of those scenarios. Yeah. And the only reason I only show you year five, maybe year three is because I know that's what you want to see as far as our projection. Sure. If it, if the, if it, the time is right to sell it a year two, year three, we're going to sell it. We're going to do always do what's best for our investors and for their returns. Yes. But at the same time, I'm planning for a 10 year because you never know, like you don't want to have to sell when the never. time isn't right to sell. That's that's what happened when, when you talk about market crashes. Um, like you know, everyone, everyone is more familiar with the the residential real estate crash and, you know, with the with the, you know, the teaser rates and all that stuff that that happened. What what happened with with commercial real estate is there's no 30 year fixed loans in commercial real estate. Yeah. The max you're getting is, is maybe 12 um, typically um, you know, 10 is more common. And a lot of these are five year, five year things. And, you know, bridge loans are three years, three years with a couple extensions. So the problem that you get into with the previous crash is all of a sudden your loan comes due and that wasn't exactly what you had planned to happen. The proper, the value of your property is a lot less than what you had planned when that your loan was coming due. You were planning on selling or refinancing. What are you going to do? All of a sudden, all that equity that you planned on having in there isn't in there because that's where the market is. Wouldn't you rather have planned for, okay, if at year five, the market's down and all of a sudden this asset isn't a great time to sell or to refinance. Wouldn't you have planned for, okay, I could just, I don't have to refinance then I can hold it for another five years and wait for it to come back around. And you know I know it would have been saved. Yeah. I, I know, I know investors don't want to hear that. They don't want to hear that they've held it for 10 years, but would they rather lose 60% of their money? Cause they, we had to sell it at year five or would they rather have to hold it for another 10 years, probably make eight, nine, 10, 11% cash flow along those 10 years, yeah. which is going to be better than any other asset if it's a down market yes. anyway. Would they rather us have planned for that than any other any other like scenario where they would just want to see the three-year or the five-year? 100%. And another thing that you know we see all this is this refinance. So part of my strategy and how I want to give, so my strategy is very simple. We improve the asset. So nine, uh, probably 80% of the assets that we do follow this strategy. We have developments, we have other things, but it's a uh, value add play that in includes a refinance, okay? And one of the things that I was seeing were people where I don't need to, we don't have to. And the improvements alone on our cash flow is a great return. So we tell people, the plan is to try to get you your money back fast. It's through the refinance, right? But you're gonna get a great return and if it's not conducive in the environment, we're not doing it, right? And this is what that looks like. This is how that projections look. And then we put it right alongside. So you can see and you can and understand. But a lot of people, they include a refinance period. And then you look at it and they're like, yeah, in four years, we're either selling it or we're refinancing it. And interest are three, is 3%. Right. And I'm like, look at what the if history it's not? of interest rates. Hmm. What if it's not? Doesn't mean I don't think it will be. I actually do think of three years. Probably, probably will but that's not the point. I don't know. Right. And if you don't have a hold plan, if you are forced into and your contracts make you do things that is not conducive, you are hurting every single investor in there. You're right. not doing right by them. Yeah. And the reason why people don't do that is because they're trying, they're they're justifying the buy with the end. 
and they're playing towards investors' emotions, and they're showing them what they want to see. Yep. And that is the name of the game, I feel like, right now in real estate. Well, I'll, I'll, I'll use a real-world example. Like I mentioned, the, the deal that we have closing in December. So we are actually assuming the loan on this. And it has a 3.89% uh, rate on it, which is high for right now. Um, but it's fixed and it's interest only full term, which, you know, interest wow. only full term is is amazing. It makes your DSA, DSCR very good. So the, which is, you know, I had an old mentor that used to say your DSCR is your sleep well at night. You know, if, if everything goes wrong, you'll still be able to pay your 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 bills. And that, you know, an interest it, only explain loan. what that is. So DSCR is your debt service coverage ratio. So it's basically a, a number of how much income you make versus what your debt service that you have to pay is. And obviously the bigger the number, that means the more income you have to service your debt. And so when you don't have to pay, um, when you only have to pay interest, you don't have to pay any principal, then that, that, that gets you into, like a lot of these are like three years interest only, but after that three years and year four, all of a sudden your payment just jumps, like it, it pops way high. And if you didn't hit your projections of what you were planning on doing, and all of a sudden that that interest rate just jumps super high, you could be in trouble. You could you could you know your property could go from cash flowing to all of a sudden cash negative. So having interest only full term just you know makes you sleep better at night because you're never going to have that jump. You're never going to have to really worry about that. Um, in in essence, you're still paying that three point eight nine rate but it just makes it a little bit nicer because we can keep a little bit more cash flow in our pockets. And if things were to go wrong, then we have that extra, you know, extra little cushion in there. Um, but so with us, with us assuming that loan, there was eight years left on this loan. And typically most people don't want to assume a loan that's any less than five years remaining on the term. So, um, I ran different scenarios. I ran the scenario, there's eight years left in the loan. There's a very, you know, there's a likelihood that interest rates might tick up a little bit. Um, if they tick up, then in three years, someone might be more willing to assume that 3.89% loan than they are right now when they could get something sub three. Do I know that? No. So I'm, I'm gonna run that as one scenario. I'm gonna run another scenario as in three years, I'm gonna have to pay you a yield maintenance penalty. I'm gonna have to sell, I'm gonna have to pay the penalty for getting out the loan. And then I'm gonna run a third scenario where it's never a good time. We're gonna have to hold this loan to eight years, we're gonna, and we're gonna have to sell in eight years. And then you know projections get more fuzzy the longer you hold them, but that's gonna be our scenario. And obviously that eight year scenario, as far as an internal rate of return is the lowest. But I show my investors all of those. I'm gonna show them, what if I have to hold this for eight years? What if at year three, all of a sudden, this is a loan that someone's gonna to wanna to assume. What if at year three, it's not something that somebody wants to assume, but I could still pay that $3 million, $4 million prepayment penalty and I could still get a good return. I'm still gonna get a better internal rate of return than year eight. But if these scenarios don't work out, then year eight, this is what's going to be. And that's going to bring down when I have to give them a range what my IRR is. I have to say, okay, this is a 14 to an 18 because that year eight is only a 14. But if I'd only said to my investors, hey, we're selling at year three, no matter what, someone's going to assume this or we're going to have to pay, pay a prepayment penalty. We're going to sell at year three. And this is going to be a 16 to 18 IRR. Like to me, 
okay, I have no idea where interest rates are going to be. If it, yes, I could say there's no way interest rates are going to go lower, but you know, it is plausible that we can go negative interest rates. You now people say, you know, it's never going to happen, but it is plausible. Other countries have negative interest rates. Um, we don't know. So, which is why we have to give them all those. And the, and the, the funny thing about that is, is that we have investors who pass on this because we show them the eight year scenario. They say eight years is too long. We don't want to invest because, it, because of the eight year scenario, but to me, Okay, I could have showed you. All right, this is a three-year scenario. I could have even made up a five-year yep. scenario. Hundred percent. I, I could have projected out yield maintenance for five years, even though no one's going to assume a loan in five years. I could still project a, a yield maintenance in, in five years, and thrown out, and it probably would have been a sixteen or seventeen IRR. But once again, I want to show people what is the worst-case scenario. What if we have to hold this for the entire term? What is, you know, the worst case is we have to hold this for the whole eight years, and to me, if you if you don't years, show people years, that high low or high or right. low medium high, and and you're right, and then you get investors look at it, and I'm and you're like, well, what are you looking at? Well, this one says that I'm going to get this. It's it's really simple. It's like right. you're going to get this return at this date, and everything, and that's it. And you're like, whoa, that's like, that's amazing. They must be, I don't know, magic because they just know exactly yeah. what's going to happen. And we have investors that believe that because they wrote it on a piece of paper, that that actually means it will happen. They yeah. don't understand the risk they're incurring with it. They don't understand what goes into it, why those numbers came in the way, because the people that are putting it out say, that's what the investors want. So we're literally going to put it out there for them. If it happens, great. If we beat it, even better. And if it doesn't, well, that's out of our control because it's real estate. And I'm like, that's bull crap. That's not. I mean, it doesn't year mean over year rents in many markets right now are over ten percent. Am I going to underwrite ten percent plus rent increase no. for 2022? People do it. Yeah, they do it. And you know what? If time. I if if I put 11 percent year uh, rent increase for 2022, I could show you a 20 percent IRR, no problem. Yeah. But that's that's the scary thing is that you know we, we by and it's by nature, right? We are bringing in passive investors. They want to invest passively. They want to have us worry about all those details. They don't want to have to do. They have their own jobs. They're, you know, they're engineers. They're, you know, they have their own nine to five job or whatever they do. They want to give it to somebody who this is our job. They trust yes. us for our job. And that's when it gets back to number one thing you're investing in is an operator because. Numbers can lie, liars can figure. Like it's it's the same thing that if you don't trust the operator and how they're doing things, then nothing else matters. It doesn't matter what number they put on there because I can make any number show up on any deal. It's how much you trust that operator to, to perform that, that operations business plan. Well, and two though, not just trust, but also understand, like you said, what happens if this scenario doesn't play out? I, I don't know how many times you've been asked that, but for me, I don't know that I have been asked that. Yeah. I don't know that anybody's ever asked me that. Right. And I'm like, wouldn't you want to know? Like, it's ask them, what happens? I have a five-year sell. Okay, well, what happens at that? Well, then we're going to sell it at a lower amount. Or we're going to sell it. Like, do the contracts force them to sell it? Like, right. what happens when that doesn't play out? And they should have an answer. 
well, then we're going to hold for two more years. We're going to do this. We'll do a refinance instead of a sell. If this occurs, like, it, there needs to be an answer that is not just, oh, you don't, you don't get the return. That's right. it. You just don't make the money. Right. And it's like, that's, that's, I just, that doesn't make sense. It's avoidable. Right. Unless the operator is putting them in. So well, in but it's, it's avoidable, but the problem is it's competitive right now. Right. So, yes. you know, where are you, where everyone's going to have to shave somewhere. And ideally where we're shaving is returns. Ideally, yes. once it gets more competitive, we're having to pay lower cap rates. We're having to reduce our returns from 14 to 13. That's that's where you want to see the shaving. If someone's going to you know, cut off a little bit of the hair somewhere, it should be in the returns. It shouldn't be anywhere else. You shouldn't be shaving. Yeah. Okay, I'm going to you know, just shave off the expenses a little bit because I think you know, I think that my payroll is is too high. I think I'm going to be able to save a little bit on payroll, or I think I'm going to be able to, you know, maybe the maybe that that pool contract I could probably get that for cheaper. Like you don't want to be shaving on those things. You don't want to be boosting rents. You want to, you know, as far as if you have an operator you really like and you see them reducing their returns right now, that's just because the market is is reducing the returns. It's because cap rates are going down it's becoming more competitive and that's what they have to to do in order to you know yeah in order to be competitive i would rather in this market in the last 18 months i would rather see somebody have reduced their returns than have kept the returns the same yeah because if you if someone's giving you the same returns 18 months ago as they are right now like that the properties aren't aren't cash flowing the same as they were. So where where are they making those numbers work? You know, unless they got a really good story that they got this thing off market from their friend's uncle's relative who you know doesn't know what they're doing, then you know if they're just getting an on market property and they're they're paying the same returns, they shaved somewhere. They yes. they changed something in the last eighteen months because the last eighteen months everything got more expensive, and the returns wow. went down. So. You know, it's it, but it's tough to explain that to somebody who's expecting returns and they're not in they're not in it. Like you know, the yeah, the, yeah it is. Just just walk around. Every single business has a help wanted sign out front. Every single every single restaurant is raising their increase, it, raising their prices because yes. you know the price of the uh, the oil that goes in the fryer because of supply chain issues went up sixty percent. Well, where's where's what what is the trickle down effect of that? We have to pay more in a restaurant. So what is the trickle down effect of real estate prices getting more expensive? It's the returns. It should be the returns. It shouldn't be anywhere else because if if it's not in the returns, then that means they are changing numbers somewhere in order to be more competitive and get you and show those returns. Yep. They're changing the the end to justify the the, the buy. Yeah, exactly. And we're seeing that a lot. Well, dude, I could talk about this all day with you. This has been freaking awesome, man. Um, tell me a little, uh, tell everybody a little more about you guys, where they can find you, learn more about you guys, what you're doing right now. Um, where should people go? 
Yeah, that's that's a tough one because I'm not that guy. Uh, <laughs> I'm the I'm the underwriter. I don't have any any. Um, um, I'm Ashley Wilson's husband. Um, but we, you know, we our our company's Bar Down Investments. Um, so we we have bardowninvestments.com, Bar Down Investments on Instagram. Um, if you want to follow along with my personal life, it's probably following my wife. She's she's known as Bad Ash Investor. Um, on Instagram and she, you know, posts all the time and I get thrown in there every once in a while. Um, but, uh, yeah, if you, if you want to know what we're doing, uh, as I said, we got, uh, we got apartments on the go. We're, uh, we're pushing out, uh, tax advantages to people and, and all that stuff. Uh, we're, we're at bardowninvestments.com and, uh, find some more about us and, you know, learn that you can trust us, I guess. That's awesome. Dude, this was an amazing conversation. Thanks again, man. Uh, appreciate you coming on here and going through that. And I'm sure I'm going to have you on again. Cause I get, yeah, literally is, we could talk about underwriting. I could talk about it all day. I love this. Oh, for sure. And I, I, I think this is actually, this is my first individual podcast. I've been on plenty of podcasts as a husband and wife team, but you are my first, you, you, uh, you're my cherry and I put on my nice hoodie for this. So, uh, you should, you should feel honored that I got dressed up. I do. I feel honored. (laughs) Right on. Thanks, dude. All right, man. All right. See you later.